gather to, to give thanks to the Lord, and what higher thing do we have to thank Him for um, than, than our salvation in Christ, the very thing that baptism so perfectly pictures? And what a cool thing that those baptized today on, on every Thanksgiving from here forward um, will be remembering their baptism, will be connecting Thanksgiving with their salvation in Christ, their death and burial and resurrection with Him, and, and that's, that's as it should be for all of us. And so as we consider being thankful for our salvation and the work of God in it this morning, um, Genesis 25 is just a great place for us to be. Um, I didn't pick it, by the way. We're working our way verse by verse through the book of Genesis, and uh, we've been about a year. We'll be about a year still, um, 25 or halfway. Um, Earlier in my days of my walk with Christ, understood what God had done for me on the cross, recognized um, that it was saved by, by His grace, by His work, and yet there's this, still this, this lingering thought in my heart, in my mind, this kind, of, this kind of reflex that just wouldn't quite go away. And I would never have spoken it out loud, I would never have said it, but in my heart was this sense of, of some level that, that God must be thankful for me. God must be grateful to me. Now, I knew Jesus had died for me, that I was an unworthy sinner, that it was his amazing grace. I understood all that. I would have told you all that. But I'd also been told so many times that that Jesus' death on the cross was a display of how much God loved me. And that that he was calling, that he wanted me to, to respond to his call. He was waiting for me, waiting for me to, to come. He was calling me, and, and I needed to respond. He had taken 999 steps toward me, and I just needed to take that last step toward him. And he's waiting, and, and I had. I had done what God was wanting me to do. I had responded to the call. I had given my life to serve him. And, and though I, I would have said, thank you, God, 99.9 times out of 100, there was something in my soul that was still tempted to say, you're welcome. You're welcome, God. After all, it was my faith. It was my response. It was me giving my life in service to him doing exactly what he wanted me to do. Hadn't I done what so many others had refused to do? That had to be worth something. In fact, I knew it was worth something because I was going to heaven and they weren't. And the only difference was what I had done. Surely this was God's way of saying thank you. As we come to the second half of Genesis 25, I think we see a very different picture of God's work in salvation. The story of Genesis moves here from from Abraham and Isaac, where we've been for the last months, now into the life uh, of Isaac and Jacob. The covenant blessing passes from one generation to the next. The promises that God made to Abraham would be fulfilled and passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob. And God is making a point here about how he, how he brings about his people. God is putting on display that the giving of his blessing, his favor, his kindness is all of grace. Let's read this 
passage together and then we'll walk through it. Genesis 25, we're going to start at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins, excuse me, twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came back in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true that you've given us your word, that it is as true as you are. God, humble us this morning as we come to your word. Lord, you know our proud hearts. You know how quick we are to, to seek for honor that is not ours. Lord, help us to see your grace clearly this morning. Help us to, to glory in your kindness and your grace to us that is so undeserved. Father, if there's anything that I have to say that is, that is not from you this morning, may those words fall to the ground and be forgotten. But God, may your word go forth. May it encourage and comfort and strengthen. May it even crush and humble and break down. But God, may your word be at work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at these verses and think about how God brings about his people, the first thing I think we see, verses 19 to 21, is you couldn't have done it. You couldn't have done it. God brings about his people. He, he passes on his blessing from one generation to the next in a way that is so obviously, deliberately clear that it is beyond human ability. We're told that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and, and we're reminded again that Rebekah is the, the daughter of Bethuel, uh, Abraham's nephew. 
And so in some ways, these two are the perfect stock. These are the, these are the two that have been brought together by God's hand um, to, to build this great nation that he's promised to Abraham and the pouring out of his blessing. But verse 21, it's slipped in there if you're looking carefully. Isaac prays for his wife because she's barren. She's unable to have children. Isaac knows about God's covenant. He understands the plan here. God's promise to Abraham that would now be passed along to him. That God would make them the father of of a great nation. Multitudes of people would descend from them. The, The whole world would be blessed through their offspring. And yet, like Abraham and Sarah before them, they are unable to produce even one child. So no doubt there's a sense of pain and deep loss, and helplessness, and brokenness, Isaac begins to intercede for his wife, to pray for her, wrestling with this helplessness and this hopelessness. God would produce life inside of his wife. Verse 21, it, it tells us almost immediately that, that Isaac prayed and those prayers were answered, but if you, if you read down, uh, the timeline's not too hard to figure out. Verse 20 tells us Isaac was uh, 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Verse 26 tells us that he is 60 years old when she conceived. This was not a quick thing. This was not an asked and answered overnight kind of experience. God answered Isaac's prayer, but, but don't overlook the fact this is 20 years later. 20 years of Isaac praying for his wife. What, weekly? Daily? pleading with the Lord for a child. 20 years, I think, is enough to show this ain't happening. This isn't working. She is barren. This door is closed. Nothing's going to happen naturally here. Why? Why does God do this? The second time in a row, why does he, why does he pair his promised one with a barren wife? Actually, it doesn't end there either. It picks up again in the next generation. Jacob's wife, Rachel, also would be barren. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three great patriarchs of the faith, the ones who all carry this promise of a great nation coming out from them, all had barren wives unable to produce children. God promised this great offspring, and they are completely incapable to do it. In Isaac's case, you can imagine the temptation. Their first Married, God had, had brought them together so beautifully. We looked at that love story in chapter 24, God's providence and leading in that. And he knew. He knew he was the promised child, that he was the one that his parents had prayed for for 90 years. Sarah was barren. Finally, he came as this gift, this child miraculously born to Abraham in his old age. And we're going to do it. We're the ones. We're the ones who are going to build this, this great people that God had promised. This is it. I'm the promised child. I've got this. This is exciting. God says, pause. You don't got this. You, you don't have this. You can't do this. Let me just make one thing clear. Let me remind you, this is not a human thing that's happening here. God is speaking through this barrenness. He's clearly communicating that the the people of God, the rescue of God, does not come about by human means. It's not something that 
Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob could simply produce at will. God does not bring about his people by human effort, by this miraculous, creative work. He brings life out of a dead womb. Of course, there's a few of these other barren wives through the Old Testament building, pointing forward to many years later. As the covenant to Abraham is fulfilled and comes to its climax, we would find another woman, not barren, but unable to have children because she's never been with a man, and she miraculously conceives Jesus. Born to the Virgin Mary. Again, God communicating, um, I'm going to do this. It's not a human thing. This is a God thing. I was true about how God brought about his people physically through the Old Testament as this physical display of God at work. And it's true about how Jesus brings about his people in the New Covenant. His spiritual people. Jesus even uses the metaphor of, of birth to explain it. John 1.13, um, John describes that the children of God as those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those whom God saves, those who are part of his family, how did they get there? How is it that they're born into this family? Is it something that we can accomplish? Jesus says no. It's not something you can just do. Like the birth of Isaac, like the birth of Jacob, like the birth of, of Joseph, it's a birth not of the flesh, not of human will, but the will of God. God had to do it. Birth is a strange metaphor otherwise, isn't it? Why would Jesus use that? It's way too, it doesn't fit otherwise. There wasn't much you could do to be born the first time. There isn't much you can do to be born again. That's the whole logic of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus seeking answers. John 3, 3 to 6, Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is not a dummy. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's very comfortable and, and familiar with dealing in metaphors. That's how they taught. That's how they spoke. What he's saying is, Jesus, there's something wrong with your metaphor. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Pharisees worked so hard to enter the kingdom of God. They kept all the laws and commands. They so diligently worked to enter the kingdom of God. And he's saying, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? In this metaphor of birth, it's broken. How could I enter again into my mother's womb? I had nothing to do with my physical birth. How could I produce a spiritual birth? That seems impossible. And Jesus says, correct. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Human effort, planning, will can produce human life, but only the effort and will and work of the Spirit can produce spiritual life. If you're a child of God, something has happened to you. You couldn't have done it. 
You are the recipient of a spiritual work of God so radical and transformative that, that, that it's on par with a new birth, a new life beginning. God brings about his people through a, a creative work, giving new life where there once was only death. So often we think so lightly of our sinfulness and our state before God, so lightly of our salvation. And we chalk the whole thing up to, to an act of the human will. We talk about salvation um, the way Charles Finney used to talk about salvation. Um, Finney, called the, the father of modern revivalism, he would, he would go out of his way to say there is nothing different in the, the new heart than the man who is studying to be a, a lawyer and has a new heart and, and, and then studies to be a banker. He just had a change of direction. That's what the new heart is that Jesus calls for. I think Scripture disagrees. And you say, well, I remember. I remember when I decided to believe in Christ for my salvation. That was my choice. I did that. Indeed, you did. Don't argue that. But 1 John 5, 1 gives us a look behind the scenes of that choice. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the tenses there. Not will be, has been. God did something. Everyone who is today believing is believing because they have been given new life. God raises up his people through a miraculous work of spiritual new birth. And those who are born, again, like like a baby's first breath, they they will see and treasure Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You saw the the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because God shone light into darkness. It was God's work. You couldn't have done it. Romans 4, 17. Paul links this to the, the narrative of Abraham. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence things that do not exist. He's paralleling what he said in in 2 Corinthians. Salvation is life out of nothing. It's existence to something that didn't formally exist. It's spiritual life out of spiritual death. No one just wakes up in the morning and says, I... I think I'm going to follow Jesus. No one studies the facts about Christ and and simply is convinced in his mind that Jesus is God. No one looks at their sinful state and comes to his own conclusions of, of repentance and faith. All of those things happen, but never without the preceding work of the Lord. Spiritual life to respond, spiritual eyes to see, spiritual existence to, to trust in God. He did it. He did what we never could have done, light into the darkness. So what do we do with that? What's our application of this truth? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It is 100% thank you and 0% you're welcome. 1 Peter 1.3, we worship. Peter says, blessed be, that's, that's worship. He's starting into a song. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
God did it by his mercy. So we should be humbled and in awe. We should, we should give thanks. You couldn't have done it. Secondly, we see that God brings about his people and you didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. Look at verses 22 and 23. Let me read these again for us. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Rebecca is carrying these twins, and they are struggling and wrestling within her. Um, this is a big deal. This is not a normal pregnancy, not even normal twins. Remember, Rebecca is not this wilting flower. She's the one who watered all of the camels. She's a tough girl. And this twin's wrestling in her. She's crying out in, in despair in, in, at the end of her wits. Lord, why is this happening to me? What is going on? And the Lord speaks to Rebecca. And he gives her this oracle about her two sons. There's two nations in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. These twins are going to be divided. Two nations. One will be stronger than the other. And then comes this unexpected piece. The older will serve the younger. That was a huge shock in that day, in that culture. The, the, the order of birth was a big, big deal. The firstborn was everything. He was second command over the household under his father. When his father passed away, he would inherit the, the household and, the, and the, the lion's share of the inheritance. He would carry on his father's place. He would carry the family forward. But in this case, the Lord upends the whole structure. He, he turns it on its head. Again, it shows that this is, this is not a human thing. It's not a natural thing that's happening here. God is saying, this is how I build my people. It will not be the strong, the impressive. It will not be the ones who deserve it, who have some rightful claim on it. No, the older will serve the younger. I will choose the weaker, the smaller, the unexpected. He's clearly making this point as he's building his people from those who, who do not deserve it. We looked a while back at this in Genesis 12. God called Abraham out of the blue. Abraham was a ridiculous choice. He's a worshiper of other gods in the land of Ur whose, whose wife is barren. If you were a talent scout for God trying to build a team to produce a great nation that would honor the Lord, um, Abraham doesn't even get invited to draft day. And that's exactly the point. It's God's doing it again. The older brother was accepted and, and expected to be the heir. And God says, no. No, we're not doing it that way. You'll say this again to the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8. Um, he makes his point so clear, it feels almost mean. The Lord says to Israel, it was not because you were more uh, in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has put, uh, 
How the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Of all the nations that were out there, why not the Chaldeans? Why not one of these other nations that were stronger and bigger? And the Lord says, yeah, I didn't choose you because you were stronger, bigger, more popular, more good-looking. I loved you. That's it. I put my love on you, not because of anything in you. He made this covenant with Abraham. He had chosen Abraham and his offspring. He set his love on them, and he would rescue them. He would be faithful to them. And here the Lord says he will set his favor, his blessing, not on the older son, but on the younger son. Paul picks up on this oracle spoken by God to Rebecca, uh, Romans 9. Uh, maybe turn there with me if you want to just walk through this passage a little bit. He uses Jacob and Esau first as this perfect example to show how the Lord brings about his people, how he, he saves by his, his choice and not by any sense of, of who earned it, who deserves it. Through the first chapters of Romans, um, Paul had been writing and, and, and summarizing and, and, and extolling this great salvation that we have in Christ, the wonder of his, his grace and his salvation. And throughout the book, he's been making this point that, that Jews and Gentiles alike are guilty under sin, under the law. And that Jews and Gentiles alike must come to Christ to be saved. And then he pauses, and he's answering a, a question that, that he sees building in the minds of his readers. If the blessing and the promise of God from the, from the Garden of Eden through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob it comes to its fulfillment in Jesus, and the majority of the Jews who are of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they're rejecting Jesus, well, doesn't that mean that God was unfaithful? Does that mean that God's promise to Abraham has failed? kind of looks like it. The children of Abraham are not receiving the blessing of Abraham. It needs some explaining. In verse 6, Paul says, no. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of or not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Do you see this, this breakdown of this misconception that they're living under? What does it mean to be a child of Abraham? Not every descendant of Abraham is truly a child of Abraham. Not everyone who bears Abraham's DNA is truly a child of Abraham. And not every child of Abraham bears Abraham's DNA. The physical descendants of Abraham and the true children of Abraham are not the same thing. There are those who were born in the, the physical legacy of Abraham. They are his physical descendants. And then there are those in the spiritual legacy of Abraham. They walk in his legacy of faith. Galatians 3.7 points this out. Know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Abraham's faith was always more significant than Abraham's DNA. It wasn't about the physical lineage. It was about his faith. Back in Romans, 
Paul discusses this distinction, first using the example of Isaac and Ishmael. God said to Abraham that even though Ishmael is technically your physical offspring, the blessing is going to come through Isaac. Your offspring will be blessed, but not Ishmael, rather Isaac. Verse 8. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Then he moves to Jacob and Esau, this next example. Verses 10 to 13. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, same DNA, same lineage physically, our father Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. Statement. That God would choose Jacob and not Esau. Made before the twins were even born, Neither had done anything to deserve anything, and God simply chose Jacob. The Lord loved Jacob. The Lord chose Jacob rather than Esau. Now, side note, um, the word hate there kind of throws us off. It's comparatively speaking. This is similar to how Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must hate your father and mother. Um, And yet we're commanded to honor our parents and to love even our enemies. It's comparative. Jacob was accepted. Esau was not. So Jacob must have done something to deserve it. Why? Why is Jacob the chosen one? To us, that seems the only way that this could be fair is if Jacob did something to earn it somehow. Look at what Paul says. What, was it based on their choices, their, their character, their, their trust in him, their faith, their obedience? No. No, Paul goes out of his way to say They were from one and the same father, and it was before either of them had done anything to make themselves worthy or unworthy. God simply chose. This choice is not arbitrary. It's just not rooted in the boys. It's rooted in God's love, his own will, his own purpose. He chose Jacob and not Esau. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I think that means you're reading the passage correctly. Because that's what Paul assumes. Paul again anticipates, this probably is making my readers uncomfortable. I I need to answer another objection that's rising. Verses 14 to 16, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Isn't that our question? God, this isn't fair. How can this be? How can you choose one and not the other? If it's not rooted in something they've done, then God must be unjust. And Paul responds, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You can't do it. You didn't earn it. Doesn't depend on human will or human exertion. Not anything you have done. Not God looking down the corridor of history to see what you would do. No, it depends solely and completely on the mercy of God. And He gives grace to whom He wills. If you're a believer today, 
It's not because you did it. God had to do a miracle that you could never have done. And it's not because you earned it. By His mercy, He chooses and saves the completely unworthy. So what is left for us to do? How do we apply this truth? Thanksgiving. Worship. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Humility and thanksgiving. We worship. We come to God as those whom He saved, whom He has chosen, not because of what we were, not because of what we would be, but in spite of it. God, who by His mercy and His mercy alone gave this glorious gift of a new birth. So that the one who boasts Boast in nothing but Jesus. You couldn't have done it. You didn't earn it. So we worship Him for it. We thank Him. His unmerited grace towards us. Finally, verses 24 to 34 back in Genesis 25. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there twins were in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so they called, he was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. See that you couldn't have done it, and you didn't earn it, and finally, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. The birthright in question is exactly what the Lord had made this decree about to Rebekah, that the older would serve the younger. God had already chosen Jacob to inherit the blessing. And yet we see that play itself out in real time. I think this is a fantastic example of God's sovereign election and human agency. I I don't think the Bible pits those against each other. I don't see them as incompatible. God is absolutely sovereign. He has chosen. He will do it. He, he, He works all things according to the pleasures of His will without exception. And we have agency. Within the will of God, we make decisions that matter and we're accountable for our decisions. God has chosen. He's going to bless Jacob. Jacob will inherit the blessing of Abraham and Isaac. And God is working that plan out through Esau's lack of self-control and through Jacob's lack of scruples. 
It's their personalities, it's their decisions, it's even their sin, and yet it's fulfilling God's perfect plan. But I think the point here is that neither of these brothers comes off as a winner. Neither of these brothers is honorable in this. Esau is a man of the field, this this mighty hunter. He's a man's man. He would live even further west than the Pritchards. He's a dude. He's hairy even, remarkably hairy. But he has no self-control. He's all about fulfilling the desires in front of him immediately. He has no impulse control whatsoever, no sense of, of delayed gratification. He sees it, he wants it, he takes it. To the point where he has no regard for the promise of God. He stands as Isaac's heir. It means not only does he stand to inherit great wealth, but the promised blessing of God. But, but those things are far off. That's not until dad dies. That's, that's off in the distance somewhere. It's not here and now, and so it had very little value to him. One day he came in from hunting. And like a proper man's man, he comes in hangry. I'm dying here, Joseph or Jacob. He can't even form a, a full sentence. The, the Hebrew there, uh, scholars laugh at it. He says something along the lines of, give me some of that red, that red stuff. Like he, he's just grunting. Man, that, don't ask my wife if that sounds familiar. Uh, Jacob, on the other hand, is a quiet man. I don't think he's soft. He's not a pansy. Um, he's, a, he's a rancher. He's a hard worker, but he's a thinker. And he, he cares uh, more about the, the state of the farm and the family and the household. And, the, and, and he, sees the, he sees the long term here. He has patience. He has foresight to, to value the inheritance, the blessing. And while that's a good thing in and of itself, the problem is he values it so much, he's such a thinker that he becomes a, a schemer and he's willing to sin even to get it. He doesn't trust the blessing of God. He doesn't trust God's goodness. He's going to take it for himself. Jacob is conniving and scheming and deceiving. And so the moment Esau walks in and eyeballs the stew and decides that he, that he wants some, Jacob is ready to pounce. He's jumping on this opportunity uh, of his weaker brother in this way. I'll give you some stew, but you sell me your birthright. I think Esau is just being overdramatic. I don't think the text implies that he was actually on the foot of, of, of the doorstep of death. Um, he eats and drinks and goes his way. He, he's okay. He's overdramatic. What good is this birthright? I'm about to die. So he swears to Jacob to sell him his birthright, to sell him his place as the firstborn son. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. He's so caught up in the here and now, he, he can't see down the road. He doesn't trust the Lord for what's to come. And Jacob becomes the rightful heir of Isaac, the covenant of Abraham. And yet Jacob is no saint in this. He's not some magnanimous hero here. He's crooked. He's devious. This was trickery. He's taken advantage of his brother. God has chosen Jacob. God has made him the heir of the blessing, but Jacob didn't deserve it. 
Over time, the, the Lord will work in Jacob. You'll see him soften. You'll see some of those traits be transformed and, and used for the glory of God. But that's not the foundation of God's grace toward him. That's the, that's the outflow of it. You ever stop and look at your own life? Maybe you see the, the frustratingly persistent sin that continues to exist in you. Those nagging tendencies that you can't seem to kick. You find yourself on your knees before the Lord saying, God, I repent again. Or maybe you have some monumental fall. You sin and you sin big. It's a disaster. You've really messed it up this time and you find yourself before the Lord. Do I, do I deserve this? Do you still love me? Will you forgive me again, Lord? And again and again? I don't deserve this. Maybe you look at a neighbor or a coworker who's not even a believer, but whose life is in better shape than yours. What do you do with that? They're a better Christian than me, and they're not even a Christian. For one, you continue in humble faith and repentance. But at the same time, maybe you've guessed it, respond in thanksgiving. Respond in worship. Giving thanks to the Lord for this unmerited grace. Your suspicions are correct. You don't deserve it. You're right. You've sinned again and proven again that you are not worthy of His grace and you never were. And He knew you would commit that sin when He died on the cross to cover it. You never did deserve it and you never will. Even on your best day, you don't deserve it. Not by 100,000 miles. In fact, the very moment that you begin to feel pretty good about yourself, like I think I'm running on all cylinders now, this sanctification thing, I, I've really got it going. Maybe, maybe I do kind of deserve this grace. It's the moment that you've fallen again into damnable pride and needing that undeserved grace. Fortunately for us, as we heard read already this morning, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 reminds us, Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. That's me. I'm a sinner. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example of those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. That's the hope we have. I've sinned again. I am totally unworthy. I've showed again that I'm a good candidate for this salvation, and I need it so badly. How does Paul respond to this truth? How does he follow up this statement of, of Jesus Christ came to save sinners? He overflows in worship. He breaks out into song. Verse 17, he says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all about Him. It's all about the display of His glory. You couldn't have done it. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. That's okay. This is not about you. It was never about you. And that hurts the ego. That's a hard pill to swallow. 
It's difficult to sit down and admit that. But that's the picture of God that we have. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory, His majesty, that that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord. That we would stand in glory at the end and no one would stand and say, didn't I do just a little bit better? We would all stand and say, I am the worst of sinners and Christ is the greatest of saviors. We are undeserving sinners and he is the God of mercy who out of the the overflow of his love and his grace gives this spiritual birth to the completely undeserving. So let us rejoice. Let's be glad in him. Let's give thanks to him. Let's stand in awe and wonder of the goodness of God. Let's even get together and throw a feast. Let's have family over and put a turkey in the oven and celebrate thanksgiving and his kindness. And it's 100% thank you and 0% you're welcome. Because our salvation in Christ is all of grace. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us. Forgive me. That in my sinful heart, I would so quickly think that I have given something to you. That there was something in me that made me special. That you would be lucky to have me on your team. When in reality, God, we each come as the foremost of sinners. We need a spiritual birth that only you can do. We need your mercy and grace that we never could earn. We are just so utterly undeserving of your kindness. And yet, God, we thank you. We stand in awe and wonder of the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he died to rescue sinners. That he purchased our pardon. So that we can stand before you not looking to anything in us. Not hoping in anything of our own doing, but all in Christ, because Christ has done it all. God, we worship you. May your name be on our lips as we celebrate thanksgiving. May we be thankful uh, for your grace in all things, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.